Good morning, church. It's so good to be with y'all. I'm going to be in Mark 6. We are all going to be in Mark 6 this morning. So if you have your Bibles, and I hope you do, would you please turn there? And I did not know that. I'm so glad, Scott, you mentioned it. I didn't know that John and Sue Gehring's class was going to be here today, but I'm so grateful. And y'all, Miss Sue Gehring, uh, you know, we, I started, I've told you, I started my professional quote-unquote career as a high school teacher and a coach. Uh, so I was 23 years old when y'all hired me, and she uh, worked alongside me and did so many kind things for me as a young man, and I'm so grateful for that. So it helped shape me in many ways. Amen. So welcome to all of y'all. That was at Brentwood Academy where... Uh, I taught, and Sue mothered many, many of us so well. Y'all, it's good to see you, and it's good to have experienced a Braves World Championship this week. How about that? Uh, I know y'all indulge me, and I appreciate it, but I do want to talk about the Braves one more time. I promise this will be it. I can't promise, but I'm going to say it one more time. Because I I need to to start today, because we're in our fifth value, which is multiplication matters. And it has occurred to me that baseball has a problem. And here's what I mean by that. And I, I mean this from the bottom of my heart because I love baseball. I've told you I love it. I can't believe the Braves won this year. It was so fun. And the truth is that I'm trying to raise children who also love baseball. And they didn't see one pitch of the World Series past like the fifth inning, right? Because baseball has a problem. And I don't know what to do to solve it. But I was encouraged this week to see that brought up on Twitter, which I'm not advising Twitter. I don't think it's good for my heart or anything, but I'm still on there. It's, uh, but this is where I saw it, and it was suggesting that baseball games should start earlier so that those of us in Central and Eastern time zone can actually stay up uh, to see the games. Because if our kids aren't watching it and loving it, they're not going to watch it and love it when they get to be my age. I love baseball because my dad listened to the Cincinnati Reds on the radio every day. And I was a Reds fan all through the 80s. And then I saw the light and <laughs> jumped on the bandwagon in 1991 when Sid Bream slid into home plate. And I haven't looked back ever since. But baseball does have a problem. And I hope that we can fix it because I do love baseball. Because multiplication matters. It's very similar to the problem I see us having in the church. Now, I'm not despondent. Baseball could go away. The kingdom of God will not. So I know better. I know how this ends. So my silly illustration to help connect the dots, I'm not in despair about it. I do know how this ends. But I also know that multiplication matters just as it does in baseball. So let's explore that a little bit. First, let's read the text together. We are in Mark chapter 1. I said 6, but that was not right at all. Beginning in verse 35. Mark chapter 1, verse 35. I'm going to go through verse 38. Perhaps those verses are blocked into their own section in your Bible. 
That's not how Mark wrote it down, but it's how we've divided it. Verse 35 says, very early in the morning, while it was still dark, he, Jesus, got up, went out and made his way to a deserted place. And and there he was praying. Simon and his companions searched for him. And when they found him, they said, everyone is looking for you. And he said to them, let's go on to the neighboring villages so that I may preach there too. This is why I've come. May God add God's blessing to the reading of God's word. Jesus said, that is why I have come. This is why I have come. Did you catch that? This is why I've come. Everybody has an agenda, don't they? Even Jesus. I told you that before in some ways before back when I was even teaching at Brentwood Academy, before I was called to vocational ministry, I actually preferred during those years in some ways telling people about Jesus than I do now. And here's why. As soon as pastor was attached to my name, I have this sinking feeling every time I try to engage in a gospel conversation. It's one of my favorite things to do. It's why I felt called to be a pastor above Anything else is that I love talking to people about Jesus. But each time I would talk to someone about Jesus and tell them what I do for a living, I had this sinking feeling inside that they were looking at me thinking, all he wants is for me to join his church. Perhaps you're new today and you paid attention to the offertory time. Perhaps that's what you took away from that time. That's all we want you to do is to join our church. And we do want you to join. But my prayer is, is that you'll see through that sinking feeling I have and that you'll be able to see beyond having that feeling yourself to whatever extent you might. And that our plea, our urging to have someone to be a part of our church, the membership process would be seen as genuine because for so many of you, it absolutely is. It absolutely is. I remembered this week of something that the late Eugene Peterson said about the church and how important the church is. He boiled it down to this. He said, where the church is, that's where Jesus is. And where Jesus is, that's where the church is. So you can't have the church without Jesus and you can't have Jesus in the world without the church. Jesus is building the church. So on some level, when we can, you know, Cross all of the, well, they just want me to be there and give us their money. If we can get past that, we are leaning into, when we tell someone about our church and invite them into membership, we are leaning into the truth that is, there is not going to be Christ in the world without the church. This is God's plan for God's people. As messed up as it can feel sometimes, as short as we can fall, this is God's plan. And our best advice that we can give one another is to be about the church in our sinfulness, in our brokenness, and to move forward doing the work that God has called the church to do because it's exactly where Jesus is. Now, I recall the late Fred Craddock. I talk to you all about Fred Craddock so often. Great preacher. I recall him telling a story about his own father, his own father who was not a part of the church. So Fred became a pastor not having a father at home that demonstrated what church membership 
looked like. I'm exactly the opposite. I've told you multiple times that my dad was, was my pastor and my dad and loves the church and continues to love the church and works as a consultant to help build the church, even in his retired years. I'm so grateful for that. But Fred tells a story about his father, a very poignant story, dealing with the disdain that his father had for the church. Craddock's dad was an alcoholic. Uh, and because of that, and because the community knew the struggles that he had with alcohol, he had made it up in his mind. He was certain that the church would not ever accept him. So he stayed away from the church. Maybe his fears were perceptive. You know, at the very heart of multiplication mattering is what we talked about last week when we looked at Acts 15, specifically about crossing cultures. If, if people don't believe, if they don't think we like them, then they're not likely to join in our fellowship. Hear me say that. I understand that. If you're new here today and you have this sinking feeling that we're not going to like you or accept you, you're not very likely to come back. I pray that's not the case for our church. If people don't believe they're going to be accepted, they're going to stay away. People in the church continually reached out to Fred Craddock's daddy. They came by the house often. They came to visit. Deacons came to see him. Members of their nurture team, ladies, came by to see him. And he would always meet their visits with this. He would say this, I know what the church wants. Another member, another pledge. Another member, another pledge. And he literally never in his adult years ever, ever went to church. So we'll get back to that story later. What would one be missing if they weren't a part of the church? What are the folks? We talked about it last week. More people in Bellevue are not sitting in a pew or a chair this morning worshiping than are. So what are people missing? when they're not involved in a church. Well, they're missing the proclamation of the gospel. Very specifically, it's what I'm doing now. It's what we do in our groups. It's what we do in, in a variety of ways when we just greet one another, when we just look at each other and know that we are here as like-minded followers of Jesus, being formed by Jesus, knowing that why we showed up is to live into even more this truth that we are saved by Christ alone. That is proclaiming the gospel. And those are the unique ways that we do them. But specifically, we do them during this time. You're sitting there listening to me proclaim the gospel. You're so kind that you would show up to do that because this matters. We proclaim the gospel to one another. We also administer the sacraments. Now, that's a, a fancy way of saying that we adhere to the two sacraments that Jesus himself adhered to during his lifetime. We, Scott mentioned one of them in baptism. It's part of our membership process, and we will do the other one in two weeks when we celebrate the Lord's Supper together. And we do that as a body of believers, and in, we, in doing that, we proclaim that Christ is alive and amongst us and lives in us and through us and seeks to tell the whole world through us the truth of the gospel. We administer the sacraments. And then third, we, we care for one another. This is a big part of our group's ministry and how our groups grow together and care for one another and equip one another. We care for one another. And, and, and you take that a little further. We hold each other accountable because we, we're prone to wander. We slip up. So we hold one another accountable in caring for one another. And this is the work of the church. You can find that on our website in the What We Believe section and what the church is. And that's what people are missing 
when they are not involved in the church. Now, Emily Sourman, I don't know Emily, but she is a member of a local church in town called Church of the Redeemer here in Nashville. It's an Anglican church. It's a church that would say things like administer the sacraments and not have to explain why they're saying it that way. And she wrote a beautiful reflection that I read recently on the life of her late, gone, far too soon pastor, Father Thomas McKenzie. Um, perhaps you saw the story in the local news about Father Thomas's tragic death along with his child, Charlie, whom he was driving back to college earlier during the fall, one of the fall break weeks. Um, and they had an accident on I-40 and they both died. Actually, I think it was before the semester began. I apologize. Now, in this article, Emily recounts Father Thomas telling she and her husband when they first met and came to Church of the Redeemer. They went out for a meal with Thomas and his wife. And, and, and she recalls Father Thomas telling her and her husband that the great thing about a liturgical church is that he could die and be replaced. A rather morbid thing to consider, considering not too long after that lunch, I think about five years, that actually happened and was put to the test. Now, I tell you this because I too had a relationship with Father Thomas. I had a few meals with him. And I too heard him explain his own replaceability. And I am struck by it. I was struck by it reading that column. My time with Father Thomas aside from him explaining that, was more characterized by his insatiable desire to see churches planted. He would not shut up about church planting. He saw it as his mission in vocational ministry, first and foremost as a pastor, to see to it that the church was mobilized so that churches would exist wherever people were. Because, right, what? Where the church is, who's there? Jesus is there. And where Jesus is, which is everywhere, the church must be there and is there as well. Emily mentioned something in her uh, article that, uh, several things that um, struck me, but she mentioned that there is a church, and I don't know where it is, but she mentioned there is a church in our community here, in our town, that has the pastor's name engraved in stone on the church sign. And even this morning, I noticed something. I was up quite early, and uh, I noticed that there was a, a television program on as I was looking through the guide on the television, and it was showing a church service from a uh, church in Chattanooga, and it didn't have the church's name in the caption. It had the pastor's name in the caption, and I thought that was interesting. Now, the, the, the bulk of Emily's article was to reveal all the ways that Thomas, Father Thomas, had made a profound impact pastorally on her and her husband and her church, even though he held to the, this firm belief in his own replaceability. And this all reminds me of my incredibly meaningful ordination process uh, six years ago now, where I was asked to read Henry Nouwen's book, In the Name of Jesus. And in that book, now and said a lot, but he, he, he said this. He said, I am deeply convinced that the Christian leader of the future is called to be completely irrelevant and to stand in this world with nothing to offer but his or her vulnerable 
self. Let me read that again. You have that, Ryan? But yeah, I'm deeply convinced that the Christian leader of the future is called to be completely irrelevant, to stand in the world with nothing to offer but his or her vulnerable self. Now, I bring this up because I think this is what Jesus is demonstrating in our passage here today. Now, maybe I'm more sensitive to the start times in the baseball game because I'm an early riser and it affects my you know, kids as well. But as an early riser, I have a naturally difficult time staying up for these games as well. But most, maybe most of the adult world has a much easier time staying up. But Jesus, too, as we see in our text, was an early riser. Look at verse 35, very early in the morning while it was still dark. Now, maybe Mark is being redundant here, um, but I think Mark had a specific reason to be redundant, to emphasize what time of day this actually was. Those morning minutes are special for you early risers. I know that they are. I was having a conversation with one of you this week who enjoys those minutes, and you were lamenting that your two young children seem to enjoy those minutes as well, but they get up for an entirely different reason than you do, ready to go. I have experienced that as well. Y'all, this was common for Jesus. Rise early to pray in a deserted place. Space, time, freedom to interact with his Father. This This is Jesus showing us vulnerability, and he is a man that didn't have to. This is God himself rising early, demonstrating for us that even he needed time with his Father. Henry Nouwen goes on to say this. Are the leaders of the future truly men and women of God? People with an ardent desire to dwell in God's presence, to listen to God's voice, to look at God's beauty, to touch God's incarnate word, and to taste fully God's infinite goodness. Now take note of this. This was a very important time in Jesus's ministry. They were getting momentum. The disciples, they were intrigued with what was going on. They were invested. They were uh, excited about what was going on. And Jesus stops and intentionally takes time to go away, to pray, to be with his father. Our church, Church of Harvathites, our church, this representation of the body of Christ in this part of the world, right here, where people are coming and moving. We talked about this last week. I jumped up in the air talking about it. I got so excited. People are moving here and our church cannot grow. People cannot be pointed to Jesus through us if we are not growing ourselves. If we are not looking to Jesus ourselves, if we are not following Jesus ourselves, if we are not being formed by Jesus ourselves. Now that might sound so simple and you may have heard a preacher say that your whole life. But it is so important. Jesus modeled it for us. Jesus even needed it. So of course we do. Of course we do. We must take time to spend with the Father. Martin Luther said it this way. He said, I have so much to do today that I can't help but spend three hours in prayer with the Lord. Did you catch that? That's good. I have so much to do today. I can't help but spend three hours in prayer. We can't do without first being with our father. Jesus modeled it for us. So church, quite simply, 
What's keeping you from spending time with Jesus? What's keeping you? So what happens next? Well, the solitude for Jesus can't last forever. And the disciples, led by Peter, always by Peter, came looking for him. Verse 36, Simon and his companions searched for him, Peter and his companions. And when they found him, they said, everyone is looking for you. Everyone's looking for you. It's then that Jesus says, he effectively says, well, let's not go back there then. Let's go ahead to their neighbors. Let's tell more people. And this struck me this week. I, I had never considered this aspect of this part of the story of Jesus with the disciples in Mark's gospel. That perhaps Jesus decides to take the good news on to the, the next town precisely because people were looking for him. Now, I know at, at certain times in the gospels, if you're familiar with how Matthew, Mark and Luke and John tell the stories, there are often more times Jesus would interact with people and then he would tell them, now, don't tell anybody about what I've, what I've done. And we think that has a lot to do with Jesus wanting there to be some mystery around what he's doing, that the, the, the time was not then, but later, specifically during that last week that led him to his cross when things would be revealed. So he would tell people, don't, don't, don't tell people what I have, I have done. And that all very well could explain the extent of what's going on here. But what if, what if this also shows us how important Jesus knew multiplication was? That it matters greatly. That Jesus says, well, let's go on to the next town precisely when everyone was clamoring, clamoring for him where he was. Now, the parts of me that want this place to be full and for y'all to think I'm the greatest thing since sliced bread. I don't know why that's so great, but that's just what we say about sliced bread. I do like bread. And wants to have my name etched in a sign of stone right out there on the, on the road. There are parts of me that want that. I confess to you. That's the part of me that would say, yeah, let's go back to that town. Let's sit in that for a little while. They want to see me? Great. Not what Jesus did. It occurs to me that maybe everyone looking for him means that he knew his job was done there. That there was sufficient interest and with the sufficient interest, there were people that would actually share what they had seen and heard. There were people that would talk about it. There were people that would work it in to their conversations. There were people that would naturally have gospel conversations. That would naturally invite people to be a part of their groups. That would naturally say, as many of you do, let me tell you about my church. Why don't you join me? People that share what they had seen and heard, fellow ministers, fellow multipliers, a church community that understands that multiplication does matter. Now, now that the pandemic, we hope, is slowing down, getting better, however you're supposed to say that, we are going to start taking mission journeys across the world. We are going to do more, even though we've done a lot in this time. We're going to do even more to go. But we are not going to be just like Jesus is in this passage. Let me explain. We're going to do both. We, we've got to go back to our town as well. Because as I told you last week, not everybody just outside these doors is looking 
for Jesus. We're going to do both. People are coming into our town at a rapid pace. And how cool, y'all, come on, how cool would it be if all of Bellevue's interest, and we can't just say Bellevue here, it's Grassland, Fairview, Kingston Springs, Pegram, West Nashville, West Mead, Franklin. We touch a lot of communities right where we sit. This is a strategic, exciting location. And how cool would it be if everybody was looking for Jesus? What if one of y'all ran to me and said, everybody's looking for Jesus? I realized that analogy. I just put myself in Jesus's sandals. That's ridiculous. I'm sorry. Forgive me. Here's the thing. Here's what Father Thomas from Church of Redeemer knew that made him crazy about church planning and only wanted to talk about church planning. He knew what the disciples said to Jesus was true. That everybody was looking for Jesus. Everybody is looking for Jesus, y'all. They just might not know it yet. So we keep being the church. We keep proclaiming the gospel. We keep administering the sacraments as often as we can. We keep caring for one another. We keep holding one another accountable. We keep proclaiming the gospel in all that we say and do. We keep inviting people and showing up for our own groups. We keep going out because, precisely because, multiplication matters. People matter. Especially the curmudgeons like Fred Craddock's father. When he was 73, no, excuse me, he was older than 73. I'm not sure how old he was, but he was down to 73 pounds. And he was in the hospital, riddled with throat cancer in his last hours. And Craddock, he noticed that the hospital room that his father was in was chock full of cards and flowers and gifts. You could hardly find a place to sit down in the hospital room that his father was eventually going to die in. And every single one of those gifts came from the church. A little church in Humboldt, Tennessee. And as Craddock stood by his father's bedside, he He motioned, his father motioned for Fred to lean down. And his father, who was a lover of Shakespeare, whispered into his son's ear a line from Hamlet. And he said, in this harsh world, son, draw your breath in pain to tell my story. And Fred said, well, daddy, what's your story? And he looked at his son and he said, I was wrong. As the band comes back up, church, I ask you this morning for us to love, yes, one another. But for that love, just as Steve said in our welcome, for that love to extend to all others, for that love to account for what I know is true, that everybody, whether or not they know it, is looking for Jesus.
And we have to be the representation of Christ in the world that at that moment that they realize it, that what they're looking for is only going to be found in something that they have not yet considered or have long forgotten, that they can see Jesus in us. Because multiplication matters and not for all the ways the world might say it does. It matters because one day we all will stand before the Father. And I don't want you to think I was wrong in that moment. I want you to know right now the truth of the gospel because in knowing it now, we get to live with Jesus now. I tell you this all the time. Eternal life is not something that we're crossing our fingers and hoping for. Eternal life is available right now. You can be with Jesus right now. And yes, it's not as it will be. And I can't paint you a picture of exactly like it can be because that picture would pale in comparison to what it actually will be. No ear has heard, no eye has seen, no mind has conceived what God has planned for those who love God. I promise you it's better than anything I could promise you it's going to be. But you can know the truth of the gospel now. You can walk with Jesus right now. And that's why multiplication matters because it is exactly what Everyone needs. It is what they are looking for, even if they do not yet know it. Let's pray.